And we are back, Drew Strong Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Derue. Today, I have my man, Connor Harris. He is a strength and conditioning coach, but a PRI specialist. The kid knows his stuff when you're talking about movement, biomechanics, and teaching the body how to move like a true human and integrating that into the weight room. So we have a great talk on that, so make sure you listen up. But before we do that, I have to shout out the sponsors, Athletic CBD. Go check them out, athleticcbd.com. Use the discount code DERU. You'll get your CBD to get you back ready to play and ready to perform. Also, Vivo Barefoot. You guys know the shoes that I've been wearing on my YouTube channel. You ask me all the time. These are the shoes, vivobarefoot.com. Go check them out. I highly recommend them. A minimalistic shoe to help you stay functional, but also increase performance. Now, let's get on to the podcast. Obviously, my name is Connor Harris. I started off as just like I feel like a lot of people do as a personal trainer. And I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to take the direction of my career, but I knew I was in the right field. It was just a matter of finding the right thing. So I think, again, just like when you start off in strength and conditioning, being like a personal trainer on the side, you kind of want to work with the best elite athletes. And from there, that was kind of my goal. So I kind of liked working in the athletic setting. The um, the college strength conditioning setting was really appealing to me. So I ended up pursuing that pretty hard for a couple of years, did some internships while I was in undergrad uh, for the uh, Oregon State sports performance teams. And I ended up working with the baseball team, uh, basketball, track, pretty much everything. Um, and that was a great experience, but uh, it just at the end, I realized it wasn't quite the environment I was looking for because, you know, with college SNC, there's there's a lot of low pay, high hours, which isn't the worst thing in the world. But uh, I saw myself working in more of a private sector. So what I ended up doing was taking an internship with a company called Exos, who does um, some performance training. I'm more of like the private side of things, and that was a great experience. But there was just something else that was calling me and I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I had done an internship previously that uh, was very much based around uh, sports performance training using PRI or postural restoration uh, principles. And I found it to be the most engaging and uh, appealing thing to me. So I, I just figured, well, man, I kind of want to pursue this and see where it goes because I didn't really know a ton about it at the time. So I ended up moving to North Carolina and I ended up doing some work there in the high school strength conditioning setting, but more so I was there to um, learn as much as I can and just see how I can apply it to different populations. Uh, and then from there, I moved back to Oregon and then I was going to open up my own facility and then COVID happened two weeks later. So that was, that was a lot of fun. But uh, I think because of that, I've had to transition to doing online because Oregon is extremely, um, as we touched on earlier, it's extremely, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, we're just very serious about yeah. COVID. So it's hard to, and it's probably the worst possible time to open up a spot um, yeah. in Portland, but I do plan on in the future. But until then, you just got to sink or swim. So I'm doing online.
Yeah. So uh, PRIs really is a physical therapy modality. So it's, it was never really originally meant to be for um, strength conditioning, but it's really just about the human body. And it's about how we are naturally asymmetrical by nature. So just by being a human, I think we can all agree. We have a heart on the left side of our body, uh, a river, a liver on the right side of our body. And because of that, and the way our diaphragm is asymmetrically shaped, we tend to have a lot of just general asymmetrical presentations within our skeleton and our skeletal position in our joints. Uh, the most common ones and most popular ones being a pelvis that is oriented to the right with the left half of the pelvis more forward as we sit in our right hip more and a shoulder on the right that is lower because as we sit in our right hip, we don't want to walk in a circle to the right. So we want to even ourselves out. So we counter rotate our trunk back to the left and then our right shoulder ends up being a little bit lower. That's the base. And then there's obviously more complicated compensations that happen from there. But my interest in it is applying it in more of a performance setting um, and also um, a rehabilitative setting uh, to the extent which I can. And um, just kind of using that as my lens because it's just humans, like we're just working with humans. And if you understand that you're just working with a person, then you can kind of see what these common compensation patterns are and positions to put people in to help them get out of it. Uh, ultimately, we're never gonna win the battle of asymmetry because we were born biased into our right sides, even if you are left-handed, um, yeah. but we can at least manage it. Yeah, I, I find that people like to sit into the right side a little bit more. So for example, when I was in North Carolina, we had a force plate. So we would put athletes on the force plate and then have them see their weight distribution between their feet when they're doing something like a squat or a deadlift or whatever, uh, some bilateral lower body exercise. And what you would see almost every single time is people having more weight on their right heel and more weight on their left toes because the left side is forward. So just naturally by being in that position, the right heel is going to take more load. So you'll see them squat down and then once you, you can add some tempo to it, maybe to make it a little bit more challenging, once they start to get tired, they'll shift their pelvis and their hips to the right. And then that's just a representation of them being able to shift into their right side more. So they're just finding the path of least resistance to get up out of that squat. And they're using their left side, their left forefoot and quad to help propel them into that right side. You'll see that a lot. And even in something like a push-up, you would see them lean into their right side a little bit more, which is also interesting. Uh, but ultimately it's just helping people understand that this is how things tend to be unless you have additional compensations. And I found a force plate and literally showing them the objective data was the best way to do that. Yeah, so uh, when it comes to not having the force play, which most people honestly don't, so I would probably have them uh, face their back towards me and then have them do some sort of tempo squat and then have them go to where things really start to suck. And then you see them start to shift towards one side or the other. It's usually the right. And then just show them that, draw a line down the down their body with like a coaching eye tool app or something like that. And then they just see it 
And if you record them under stress, you can start to see these compensations come up more and more because the body reverts to what it feels comfortable doing, which is sitting in the right side a lot of the times. And that's not always what it is. It's not like, I'm not trying to be so reductionist to the point where it's like, well, you know, every human is like this, right? Like there are differences. And I think it's important to appreciate that. But um, the other point of your question, um, can you remind me, sorry, I was on a tangent. What's, what was the other half of your question right there? situation for sure yeah so i think it's like defining expansion and compression i think people look at it generally speaking the the same way so expansion is what most people refer to as inhalation so when we inhale that's an expansive strategy expansive strategies are usually biased towards external rotation abduction and uh external rotation going so flexion abduction external rotation when we exhale our body tends to be biased towards the joint actions of internal rotation adduction and extension so these joint actions are usually coupled with one another within our rib cage our pelvis so on and so forth so usually you have people that are biased towards one or the other and i think it's something we've always known we're just not labeling it differently like you can look at someone and say you're probably a better power lifter than you are a marathon runner and vice versa for different body types so generally speaking if you imagine a big spectrum imagine on one end of the spectrum is a big heavy powerlifting dude. And on the other end is a small, thin marathon running female. The narrows are gonna be more on the uh, female marathon running side. And the uh, people that are more compressed or biased towards exhalation are gonna be more towards the other end of the spectrum. And in reality, most people live somewhere on, on that spectrum. It's not like, it's not a black and white thing. And usually compensations occur that help you find what you don't have. So for example, if I'm someone biased towards um, internal rotation, uh, my body's going to find a way to get that external rotation and vice versa. So when I've, when we talk about expansion and compression, we're talking about expansion, inhalation, compression, exhalation, and then that reflects certain joint positions. And because of those joint positions and genetic biases, we tend to be biased towards one or the other. That's a great question. Yeah, I think uh, just watching uh, MMA fighters, if you ever watch them, uh, they usually have their left foot forward more, which is interesting uh, when they're in that staggered stance. Uh, rarely do you see one with the right foot forward more, but when you do see that, 
Um, oftentimes I find, I'm, I haven't worked with a bunch of fighters myself, but I've worked with a couple and I find the ones that have the right foot forward more. Those actually tend to be uh, pretty skilled fighters, at least in my limited experience. So Research. I was, I was uh, holding that one back. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think that's a reflection of why people are comfortable with that left pelvis forward, you know, the left foot's forward. So that could just be a position of comfort, but there's also things that go into it. Like maybe they were just taught that, you know, maybe it's as simple as that. And that's just what it is. And then, you know, uh, those asymmetries can become further, uh, further exaggerated over time. So I think, like I mentioned earlier, you're never going to win the battle with asymmetry, but there are instances and many compensations that happen when the pelvis or the body in general gets too asymmetrical because the body tries to find what it doesn't have. So for example, the right side, which is biased towards internal rotation, adduction and extension or compression, left side is biased towards external rotation, abduction and flexion or expansion then we're going to seek strategies to help us find those missing joint actions. And that can happen in a variety of different ways. A lot of the times it happens via the pelvis, just dumping forward and going into an anterior pelvic tilt. You see that a lot because the body, the human body is trying to go forward. We're trying to survive, reproduce, and we're trying to go forward a lot. Those are the three main things pretty much everyone wants to do. So if we can't go forward naturally, uh, through the just basic joint positions and actions we should have, we're going to find a way to do it um, through the path of least resistance. And that usually involves an extension pattern and anterior pelvic tilt. Now, because of that, that's sort of a bilateral compensation, but underneath the surface, you still have these asymmetries. So if I have someone that's extremely asymmetrical, there can be a point where it's a red flag where let's say someone I'm testing their range of motion and this person has, I don't know, like double or, you know, over two times the amount of internal rotation on one side than the other. Then at that point, I'm going to start to be a little bit concerned, but it also depends on the context of what type of athlete I'm working with and how asymmetrical do they need to be? Because a baseball pitcher needs to be extremely asymmetrical. Whereas a fighter maybe needs to be a little bit less so because they need to be good on both sides. So I want to seek to restore the ability for that person to access those joint actions that they're missing on both sides in a non-compensatory manner. But I also don't want to get them so far out of their pattern that it takes them away from being a good athlete because extension is power production. Extension is how people basically excel at athletics. That's why so many great athletes have a huge anterior pelvic tilt. You know, their back extensors are just crazy well-developed and that's totally normal. I don't think we should call that bad because, you know, it's a common theme, pretty much universal across sports. So what I will generally do is look at what kind of an athlete is this? And then I will create an in-season and out-of-season uh, sort of goals list for what we want this person to look like. When someone's in season, they need to, they need to play their sport. They need to lift to excel at their sport and they need to basically stay in their pattern. If I took them out of their pattern or out of what makes them a great athlete in season, that would be probably pretty detrimental because now they're going to have to self-organize all their skills and body around an entirely new skeletal position that's unfamiliar to them. Whereas out of season, 
that person can probably afford to get more variability. They can probably afford to, you know, take their foot off of the gas of pushing themselves all of the time. So in that point, I would probably want to restore more variability, take them out of their pattern a little bit more. And then as you get, it's like periodization, right? As you get closer to the competition, then you want to start getting them geared for where they need to be. But I find having that balance of how much of this extension pattern or whatever you're leveraging to excel at your sport, how much of it do we really want to keep? And then I will have specific tangible range of motion, assessment, um, whatever uh, goals to maintain in season. And if they dip below that threshold, then I will probably start to want to get those back a little bit more. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And if I had someone, a fighter, an athlete where they were year round like that, and it was a little bit unpredictable, I think that would be a very good way of doing it. I would say have your tangible goals that you want to maintain um, all year round or maybe X weeks out from a competition or whatever. But yes, using the primary lifts as the get after it, we're really going to, you know, drive some adaptations here, high output, and then fill in the accessory exercises with more of what you're describing, that would be extremely beneficial for that person. That would help restore a little bit of variability. So that way, um, once they get off of the platform with their heavy deadlift squats, whatever, then they can go get out of that heavy extension pattern and then leave the gym feeling a little bit better as opposed to leave the gym extremely compressed. But also, I think the unilateral work is so important because, you know, how often do you, you know, how often do you throw a punch or a kick with two legs? 
you don't. So there's no, there's got to be a little bit of specificity as well. So when we do unilateral exercises, we're compressing one side of the body and expanding the other. One side is going into certain joint actions. The opposite side is probably going into the opposite. And that's exactly what reciprocal alternating movement is. If I throw a punch with my right hand and my right hand is going into internal rotation, my shoulder is as well, then my left is going to be going into external. So that's why I think the unilateral thing is so important too, because you're getting exactly that. And if you're only training bilateral compressive exercises, which again, are not a bad thing at all. I love them, use them all the time. If I, if we only did bilateral activities, we would be teaching the body to do the same thing on both sides of the body at the same exact time. And I don't personally believe that has the greatest amount of carryover to the sport, although it is fantastic for driving a high potential output. So that was a that was basically a webinar that I did um, to promote my my biomechanics program, but it was just basically a, a short sort of a snippet of it. And the idea is that when you're in the weight room, whether you're cognizant of it or not, you're always mimicking the gate cycle, the gate cycle in one way or another. And you could be doing it well, or you could be doing it not so well. And neither is necessarily right or wrong. It's just like what is your goal, right? So. It's a lens to look through weight training because depending on the position of your body, you're going to be in a specific phase of gait. So for example, and the easiest way to think about it is through a shin angle. So think about your shin, your lower leg. Uh, when you take a step forward, when you're in heel strike, your shin is pointing backwards. It's more negative. And then when you're in mid stance, you're in the second, uh, when you're in the second third of the gait cycle, your shin is vertical and it's completely upright. That's when you have all your weight on that leg. And then when you push off with your toe, then you're going to be in more of a positive or forward shin angle. So for example, and a really easy way to describe this would just be doing a narrow, narrow split stance, feet pretty close together and you do a split squat. Well, what happens is you go down. You'd also do this in a rear foot elevated position too you're gonna bias a positive shin angle. So because of that, you're going to be mirroring the late stance or toe off mechanics of gait, which is concentric or just basically the muscles that are gonna be active there are your glutes, your quads. And you're also going to be getting the pelvic orientation that mimics what happens in late stance. So for example, someone who's very compressive and they don't have a ton of compensations, uh, they're going to be biased towards more of that mid and late stance. So if I had someone that was biased towards mid stance and I wanted to give them more variability, I wanted to give them the ability to access that external rotation because they're so biased towards internal rotation because that's what the definition of compression we're using right now is, yeah. I would want to get them towards more of that negative shin angle. I would want them to be more biased towards heel strength. So I might elevate their heels on some plates and then think about doing a split squat position 
but think about having either a very wide stance or think about just elevating your front heel. That's going to bring your, your shin, your tibia into more of a negative angle. And then as you go down, your tibia and shin can only translate so far. So you're going to be placing constraint on your body to keep you in what we call that phase of gait. But it's really ultimately just skeletal positions. And then the outcome is the muscular function. It's not like it's your body knows it's heel strike and it's going into you know heel strike. It's just this is a pelvic and lower leg position that mimics heel strike. Therefore, you're going to get the joint actions and muscular orientation associated with it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think with the, uh, I think people can look at that and say, well, um, if I'm really biased towards, you know, doing a lot of propulsive activity like toe off, um, don't I need a ton of rear foot elevated split squats in that position? I would say that's going to be really helpful, but like you mentioned, it's important to think about what you're not getting. So if you're doing a lot of stuff that pushes you forward, you might want to do some stuff that's going to pull you back because, uh, when injuries occur, when the body starts to get overworked, that's when we have too much of one thing or too much of one thing too quickly. Yes. And that, I'm glad you brought that up. That's something that's uh, pretty common with people who have had a significant injury to the right side. Mm -hmm. Most commonly ACL tears and severe ankle sprains yeah. because the body doesn't want to trust the right side, but it wants to be in it. So what it wants to do then is shift over to the left as you touched on. But the problem is, is that, you know, if you're over the age of 18, you've gone through puberty and all that, then your body is comfortable being 
uh, where it is, you know? So if you then tell it, wait, you can't do this anymore because you don't trust it unconsciously or consciously, then you're going to try and shift to a side that you were never very good at. And now you're not really good at getting in either hip. And then what goes on from there is your body's just going to, again, find the path of least resistance. So oftentimes those people will push over to the left, but then they don't want to be in the left. So then they just try to push back to the right. And it's just like, it's, it's just imagine like a, like a bunch of gears shifting and they're like a Jenga stack, right? If you take one of those blocks out, then, you know, you're gonna have one side collapsing a little bit of it still standing. So I think with those types of people, sometimes you get to the point where it's like, well, maybe I do want you to get back into your right side because it's not like the right side's bad and the left side is good. Like getting in the right side's bad and getting the left side's good. It's, it's not like that at all. It's the goal is to get into each side and be able to get out of each side. So I would probably do a lot of things with you that would help shift you into the right, but also stuff that will help you get out of it and shift into the left because the goal is get in, get out and do it again. I love talking about this stuff. Um, so with the body, the quickest way or the most efficient way to get from one point to the next is a straight line. It's not always the quickest, but it's usually the most efficient just for the purposes of this example. So nature, it wants to conserve the most amount of energy for the most amount of results, right? So we want to spend the least amount of calories, most amount of results. So if we, uh, our nature, we want to form a lot of straight lines. So we do that. And then the most efficient makeup of a straight line in a two-dimensional um, sphere, according to the uh, biotensegrity theory is a triangle. If you take that into three dimensions, it then turns into a tetrahedron. And then if you stack a bunch of tetrahedrons and pyramids together, another way to think about it is just like a pyramid, stack a bunch of pyramids together, you end up getting a helix every mm -hmm. single time. No matter how you stack them, it's going to end up looking like a helix. And then if you stack two helixes together, what do you have? You have a double helix. A DNA is a double helix. And this is starting at like the very roots. But if you look at um, in, in my program, I talk, uh, one of the first slides I show is this uh, picture from like a 1985 textbook. And it's showing actin and myosin, which is, you know, what makes up our muscles. Actin and myosin are helical they literally look like a double helix wrapped around each other. And then if you understand that that's what makes up muscles, then muscles don't contract from, you know, linear, linearly like this. They don't come together and spread apart in a straight line. They yeah. twist and they rotate together. And joints twist and rotate. Even in like a bicep curl, your joints are twisting and rotating to flex your elbow. And that's just a fact, like that's how they rotate. So really there, there is no straight lines. There's not many straight lines happening. They look like straight lines, but they're a result of rotation. So that's why when we talk about expansion and compression, we usually talk about it's an external rotation strategy or it's an internal rotation strategy. The idea of a sagittal plane, a frontal plane there, they make sense. And I think they're beneficial, but everything happens in a transverse plane way even down to the, you know, DNA.
Yeah. So if I've got, let's just take hitting a baseball as an example. Mm-hmm. So in order to effectively transition your weight from one side to the other and, you know, have a good swing path, you need to be able to shift into your back hip. You've got to be able to do that. In order for that to happen, you've got to have your pelvis move over your femur, your leg bone in a certain way in internal rotation. So that's got to occur. And in order for you to propel out of that side, you've got to be able to push out of that hip too. So that goes back to what I'm, I was saying earlier about get in, get out and do it on both sides. So if you can't shift into your back hip to begin with, for me, I'm a lefty. So that would be my left hip. Then I'm going to really struggle to then do what I'm really good at with the left side and push out of it. Let's take a normal right-hander. They're going to shift into their right hip, but oh wait, they can't really get out of that right hip. So they're going to struggle to get out of it and then push more of their weight and then get that swing path where they can make a nice connection with the ball. So what I'm looking at is a, can you even get into either hip? Because if you can't, then everything we're going to be doing with the nitty gritty details of your swing and whatever your swing coach is doing with you, it's probably not going to be as effective as if you could actually shift in and out of your pelvis. And if you could dissociate your um, thorax from your pelvis and also use it in unison, these things are really important. So it's really about, do you even have step one, the ability to use your body in the way you want to use it to swing a baseball or throw a baseball, throw a punch or throw a kick, whatever the case is. Because if you don't, then all the technique work in the world might not save you from the fact that you can't even get into the position your coach is asking you to. What do you mean by that? I see what you mean. So I think uh, the mobility. So have you ever heard the term uh, proximal mo- uh, stability equals distal mobility? It's it's that right there. So if you have the ability to stabilize and basically because the idea of skeletal position dictates muscular function, uh, let's let's think about the idea if your pelvis is stuck in a certain orientation um, when it's forward, you're going to be biased towards internal rotation. Mm-hmm. So if I can't get out of that position, then I'm never going to be able to have the um, mobility, quote unquote, to get into external rotation effectively. So I could do all the pigeon stretches in the world. I can dissociate my ribs from my pelvis. But if I can't get out of that anterior orientation of my pelvis, then external rotation is going to have a hard time sticking. So I'm going to look at where is this pelvis able to get into, where is it not able to get into, and then using exercises or certain muscles, like for example, the hamstrings posteriorly tip the pelvis, bring that pelvis back into more of a neutral state will give you a ton more mobility than just kind of stretching your way into more mobility. Because at that point, like if your pelvis isn't in a good position and you're doing a bunch of mobility stretches, at what point is that actually good for you? And what point is that? Like, what are you even stretching at that point is what I would ask. And where's that mobility coming from at that point?
I certainly do. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people look at it from a top down pelvis down to feet or a bottom up feet up to pelvis. I think it's both because the feet interact with the ground, which, which sets the stage for your pelvis. But if your pelvis can't accept what's going on at your feet, for example, uh, if my left pelvis is four, and if you remember way back when I was talking about the force plate example and how we tend to have more weight on our uh, forefoot on our left, um, then if the pelvis position doesn't allow you to get more weight on your left heel for heel strike, then it's going to work both ways. So you're going to have the, the, the ground up and then you're going to have your pelvis allowing that ground up uh, ground reaction force, which is then going to influence the rest of your skeleton orientation and your movement. Uh, so they both feed each other and it's a, it's a relationship that's extremely hard to dissociate from, from one another. Yeah, I call it, I call it my biomechanics program. It's basically aimed at, it doesn't have to be coaches, really just anyone who's interested in learning about the principle, principles and model I use. And it's laid out over 12 weeks. And it's just basically like, this is the start. We start at biotensegrity and then we go all the way uh, into different case studies. And the goal is to improve movement and performance uh, for both athletes and general population. So, um, yeah, so my YouTube is, oh man, I don't even know what my YouTube If you look up my name, just Connor Harris, C-O-N-O-R, uh, spelled like Connor McGregor, then you'll find my YouTube, no problem. Uh, my, my handle on both Twitter and Instagram is C-O-N-O-R uh, underscore Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, and then another underscore after that. Yeah, man, I enjoyed that. Thank you.